This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. On this week's episode, we look at whether Liz Truss's Tory revolution has already failed. Plus, is it time the West got tough on Putin when it comes to his nuclear threats? And finally, we look at the latest environmental activist movement, Tire Extinguishers. First up, for his cover piece in the magazine this week, James Forsyth says that after a difficult week at the Tory party conference... The wheels seem to be coming off for Liz Truss. He joins us now alongside former cabinet minister and new Labour architect, Peter Mandelson, who writes the diary in this week's Spectator. James, you're just back from conference. Can you start by giving us your reflections on how it went? It's been a remarkable conference. I can't quite remember one like it. Liz Truss finished it with a speech that went pretty well. But the days beforehand were, were very striking. Now, first of all, there was a big U-turn on the abolition of the 45p top rate of tax. And you know, yes, you can say that measure is not particularly important, but I think it does matter because Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's whole argument was, we're not going to be slaves to what they perceive as a kind of social democratic consensus. We're going to scrap this tax rate precisely because it is totemic. So the retreat from it is also totemic. And then on the Tuesday, we had a remarkable day of, kind of cabinet infighting, which is Penny Morton calling for benefits to be upraised in line with inflation when everyone knew that this trust wanted to do it in line with earnings, not inflation. Suella Bradman attacking Michael Gove, saying he'd led a coup. Kenny Badnock saying that kind of language was too incendiary. So I think it was a, it was a, it was a conference that revealed the fact that the Tory party has started having the kind of ideological debate about what the party stands for. But you would normally expect a party to have after an election defeat, not while they're currently in government. So on that final point that James made there, Peter, does that sound familiar to the, the Corbynite years of the Labour Party? Are, this, are the Tories falling into similar types of fighting that perhaps were common at Labour Party conference just a few years ago? Yeah, it sounds very much to me like a, a Labour Party conference of old, pre-Keir Starmer. I mean, look, her speech today was a perfectly good, straightforward sort of statement of where she's coming from. I suspect it will almost entirely pass by the British electorate. It was designed essentially for her own party, for her supporters. Obviously, it couldn't have been a sort of victory lap, uh, given everything that's happened. But I I saw it more as an attempt not to provoke any faction in the party or set off another revolt. And I think from now on, she's going to have to be playing a numbers game from now to the election. She's going to be counting the numbers of rebels to see whether she can get through her legislation, bill by bill, clause by clause. It's not going to be very edifying. It's not going to be very enjoyable. It's not going to instill the public, you know, the the electorate with very much sort of confidence or excitement. And it's at risk of becoming, 
even worse, a sort of Theresa May zombie-like government. It hasn't become that yet, but my word this week sort of set the scene for that emerging over the coming months and, God help us, two years between now and the election. I think one of the things that's really interesting is that Liz Truss is showing no signs of kind of trimming her sails and kind of limiting her radicalism. She, she is remarkably un, kind of unbothered by 45p in a way. And I think she still plans to carry on with kind of radical things. I mean, the problem she's got is that she is now, as all prime ministers eventually end up being, she's now governing in coalition with her parliamentary party. And I think with the polls where they are, Tory MPs are going to be very reluctant to vote for anything that they think might cost them in their own seats. And I think that's going to make things hard for her because a lot of these supply side reforms that she wants to do, take, for example, planning, you know, they are not inherently popular measures. And, and so I think this is going to be the problem, which is there is going to be this break on her radicalism, which is the parliamentary party, which is going to be very, very wary of this because they look at that budget by any other name and they look at how the public reacted to it. And you always, when you take over in, in, in midterm, you, you, you don't have that strength that comes from being able to say, look, I've won a general election. And I mean, the problem for her now is Tory MPs will be much more wary about her political judgment because of how the public reacted to that budget. Well, James, you're sort of agreeing with me. You're saying it is going to become a numbers game. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think, I, I, think, I think parliamentary management is going to become a really big thing. And I think one of the things that she will come to regret, I suspect, is that she didn't obey Winston Churchill's dictum in victory magnanimity. Instead, she decided that to victor goes to spoils. She created a very loyalist cabinet and government. And I mean, the problem with that is, apologies for being crude, but she would be much better to have Michael Gove inside the tent pissing out rather than outside the tent pissing in. And I think this is going to become a, a problem for her, which is when you look at the sheer number of former ministers now sitting on the back benches, the Tory party is getting close, I think, to being unwhippable. That, that's true. But just to be devil's advocate on her behalf, if I may, I mean, if she would had all these people who disagree with her inside the cabinet, it would have been one long process of negotiation, you know, with her own ministers. And I think that what she wanted to do was to create a cabinet of true believers or true loyalists, because she thought that's the way in which I can gather speed and drive through what I believe in. The problem is, is what she believes in. You, you know, you say that she's sort of absolutely determined to take on these sort of radical targets and goals. She doesn't sound so much determined as programmed. I mean, she, she, she comes across to the public, and I think certainly to the markets, by the way, as a sort of programmed version of uh, Tory version of Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, she's a sort of libertarian you know, who won't be bound by rules or convention. She likes throwing stones at windows and denouncing everyone who, you know, stands for things she disagrees with. I mean, I think she's viewed by the markets as basically an unserious person, but also faintly dangerous. And that's why I say that she's rather like a Tory version of, of Jeremy Corbyn or some <laughs> sort of young tech entrepreneur, you know, who believes that, disruption is the sort of key to everything, that we've got to move fast, break things, and not apologise to anyone in the wake of the damage and disruption that we that has ensued. I mean, I just don't think that 
people will welcome this as a sort of serious approach to governing the country. And I think that's a very big problem for her. And speaking of comparisons, Peter, can I ask what you made of Jacob Rees-Mogg comparing you to Michael Gove, who was somewhat of a troublemaker at this this year's conference? Oh, no, I, he said, describe Michael Gove as charming and clever. I was thrilled. <laughs> thrilled, thrilled. Incidentally, I listened for the first time to a long podcast of Jacob Rees-Mogg. I must say he's incredibly sort of in command of himself and what he's saying. I mean, he has an ability to explain the inexplicable and to excuse the totally inexcusable politically in a very sort of laid back, charming and erudite way. I just saw a side to him that I hadn't seen before. But as for me being playing Michael Gove, well, you know, <laughs> I couldn't wish for more. Um, James, in terms of the, the Tories' chance of a sort of turnaround of fortunes, one of the things that Katie Balls writes about in her piece of the magazine this week are the sort of whisperings that went on at Tory conference about possibly replacing Liz Charles. Uh, so therefore, an- yet another new Tory leader in a very short space of time, you know, sort of caretaker prime minister with different names being talked about, maybe even a return for Boris Johnson. I mean, surely all of this is is pretty improbable, isn't it? Or is nothing, you know, is anything uh, possible now? Well, look, I mean, British politics in the last eight years has shown that you shouldn't rule anything out. But I think most Tory MPs think that, that the kind of change leader again would make them look slightly ridiculous. I also think you could only probably do it if you could have a candidate that you could coronate. And there isn't a kind of Michael Howard style figure around there because you know, there are lots of Tory MPs who really wouldn't want Boris Johnson to come back, for example. But I think that two things to watch for. One, what happens in the polls. If the Labour lead stays in the 20s and doesn't fall back into the teens, I think Tory MPs will begin to get very, very jittery. And then I think the other question is, how do the markets react when they come up with this, this medium-term fiscal plan, of which the date of which seems to keep moving about, but which is currently scheduled for November 23rd? I think if, that, if the markets react badly to that, that will put her in a difficult position. But I also think most Tory MPs do think, look, we would look totally absurd to go back to the public and say, here's yet another prime minister for you. Can I just say, I think one mistake she made was only dropping the top rate 45p. She should have withdrawn the whole budget. I mean, withdrawn it, rethought it, because it was just completely rushed and it didn't hang together. What she needed to do was to rethink the whole thing, represent all of the tax, spending, borrowing and other fiscal elements together so that people could judge it as a whole rather than pick off different bits of it. But can I make also another point about the about Labour and the opposition? You know, the Conservatives have benefited for years, almost a decade, from a basically unserious and uncompetitive Labour opposition, obviously particularly uh, under Jeremy Corbyn. And I think that encouraged some poor, loose, lazy thinking in the Tory party. They took a lot for granted. It was as if you can carry on, you know, in politics, you know, as if you're sort of steeped inside a sort of never-ending Tory party leadership contest where all you need to do is to appeal to the maddest frogs in the country. Well, the difference now is you have a credible, competitive Labour opposition. And therefore, you are going to be compared now to an alternative. And that is going to have a profound impact on the governing party. 
And Peter, just to finish on, you say that we're not yet in 1997 New Labour territory, but do you think Liz Truss could help push Labour towards something like that and, and a big victory at the next election? Well, obviously, from Labour's narrow point of view, I'm not talking about the country now, it would be better if she stayed put. I mean, that's just a sort of statement of the obvious, so that will help Labour. But really, that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that what you had in 1997 was quite a visionary, very ambitious, setting out a very clear policy direction and departures from you know, various aspects of you know, Labour Party orthodoxy and, and, and policy making. And, and it was all brought together and it hung together and people saw it and judged it, the people, the policies, the direction, the unity of the party. I mean, forget the sort of Wizzo communications and presentation, that was just sort of icing on the top of the cake. The fact is the cake was very, very well and fully baked. Now, we don't have that cake yet from the Labour Party. You know, they're on course to put it together and to bake it properly. And they, in a sense, they've got two years to do so, but they haven't done it yet. Thank you, James and Peter. Next, in the magazine this week, Mark Galliotti has written about how the West should respond to Putin's thermonuclear threats. He joins us now alongside Elizabeth Brawl. Mark, you start your article by saying that Putin wants the West to think that he may be crazy enough to use a nuclear weapon. Do you think he is? I don't think he's crazy. On the other hand, he may begin to reach a point of, shall we say, maximum desperation. By his annexation, his mobilisation, he really has raised the stakes. And what this means is, although I don't think we're anywhere near there yet, there may come a point at which he really feels he has no choice but to essentially escalate or capitulate. And in those circumstances, he might be tempted to escalate. And if he were to do that, what, what sort of strike do you think he would be aiming for? I mean, let's be honest, we, we would see a process rather than a sudden sort of unexpected bolt from the blue. What we would see is, first of all, a very visible and sort of demonstrative effort to start reconditioning their tactical nuclear warheads, which are currently sort of stored in a dozen arsenals around the country. And they haven't been used since 1990, so God knows what state they're in. Then we would probably see some exercise, then maybe a test explosion, quote unquote, on Russian soil or maybe in northern waters. And only then would they actually reach the point of thinking of of hitting a target within Ukraine. So the idea is they would hope beyond hope that they would intimidate or deter us and Kiev before that point. And if so, probably even then, for the first time they they hit Ukraine, they probably would hit an essentially uninhabited target like Snake Island off Odessa, which would again more or less say, I'm serious, really, I'm serious, hoping that that means that, that at that point he wouldn't have to then move forward and actually hit a military or infrastructure target. And Elizabeth, so Mark has painted a quite worrying hypothetical there. If such events were to to take place as Marcus described them, what do you think the West's response would be and what do you think it should be? Well, if I can backtrack a little bit and, and say, 
that part of, of the reason I think this messaging is taking place by Putin and, and others is to, to frighten the West. That's clearly uh, always the case with, with nuclear threats. You want the other side to do something and, and so you threaten them until until they do as you say. And the West's adversaries have an advantage because they know that in our countries public opinion matters and, and politicians are concerned about public reaction to various contingencies. So in the West, you can conceivably, in fact, you, you, you can very likely whip up panic and, and hysteria among the population if you threaten a nuclear strike. And then the public will say, well, hang on, why are we supporting Ukraine in this war? Let's just let it be over with as soon as possible. Because, and that gets me to the second point, if Putin were to strike Ukraine, the West would have to respond because all countries that don't have nuclear weapons are protected by the ones that do under the non-proliferation treaty. So we couldn't just say, well, for, that, that's really too bad for the Ukrainians. We owe them and all other non-nuclear weapon states. Well, the official nuclear weapon states owe them and other non-nuclear weapon states protection and response in such a case, which is, of course, why Ukraine agreed to give up its nuclear weapons upon becoming independent three decades ago and may or may not have been very wise, but I think it was good for world peace. Now Ukraine needs protection from, from the US, the UK and France in response. Mark, in your piece, you talk about how the West has a range of means for punishing Russia if they were to escalate using tactical nuclear weapons. And you talk about these non-kinetic means. Can you explain what, what those exactly are? Well, we tend to obsess about the risks of, for example, cyber attacks or the like coming from Russia. And it's absolutely something that we have to be considering and countering. But it's also worth noting the degree to which actually we are hardly disarmed in this particular conflict. The difference is the Russians have been much more aggressive in their use. And the thing about cyber attacks is you only notice them when they're being deployed. But it is clear that uh, the West has a whole variety of exploits that it's been preparing for a long time in case it needs to bring pressure to bear on, on Russia. Exactly what they are, how extensive they would be, we don't know. But piecing together from the odd, stray and probably rather unguarded comet, it would be things like targeting the communications infrastructure of Russia. You know, for example, the control systems that control the railways, because the railways carry 90% of all the freight that moves around Russia, including, most importantly, food. Likewise, it would perhaps be the systems that control air traffic control, not because we want to see Russian planes crashing, but precisely because we would want to ground them. And generally speaking, it would be a whole variety of attacks that are meant to do two things. One is genuinely damage the Russian state. But two, and perhaps most importantly, is symbolically and politically make the point that we can reach out and do things to you. So it might well be things like interrupting the internet or putting... well. Some might call it propaganda, others information, but things into the realms of, of the TV and such like, or on key government web pages saying, this is what you've done and this is how we are responding, in an attempt to undermine the state's control of the media message and essentially make Russians feel that this is a dangerous moment themselves. So again, I mean, I think generally speaking, it is difficult, as I said, because we, we, we don't know the exact parameters, but I think... It is clear that for some years, the West has been worried that at some point it might need to flex some virtual muscle with Russia. And they have been preparing for that intent. Elizabeth, 
moving away briefly from nuclear weapons, you recently released your new book, The Defender's Dilemma, in which you consider how we should deter grey zone aggression. Please, could you tell our listeners, firstly, what is grey zone aggression? And secondly, some of the suggestions that, that you make to policymakers in your book? Yeah, so the book was released in the spring and the, the defender's dilemma is what, what we are all encounter, what every Western country, liberal democracy is encountering, which is that the other side can engage in, in grey zone aggression. It's hard to detect, it's hard to respond to and, and it's hard to respond to partly because it's, it's hard to detect and hard to distinguish from, from the, the, the bustle of, of globalisation. But it's also hard to respond to because that grey zone aggression may involve unethical means like, for example, building artificial islands in another country's waters. Well, we are not in the business of building artificial islands in another country's waters. So that is the defender's dilemma. The the key in, in responding to it or rather deterring it is, well, you can, you can respond by punishment, but it, it is very tricky because we can't, for the most part, respond in kind. So the, the, the key solution, I think, is deterrence by denial, by signaling that we collectively within our countries, governments, the private sector, and the rest of civil, of civil society, meaning uh, ordinary citizens or the, the citizenry, will do their best to limit the effects of that aggression. So, for example, say if a pipeline were to be sabotaged, you can, as, as the country that is being sabotaged, the home of the sabotage that has taken place, you can signal that, oh, actually, we know how, how to handle this. It's not a cause for panic. Our Navy and Coast Guard will investigate and we will make sure that the leaks are removed from the ocean. And that removes the, the effect that the, the offending party wanted to achieve, meaning panic and 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 public distrust in the authorities. And then if we look at the future attacks, for example, on, on CNI that may take place, there's an enormous role for, for ordinary citizens. So the government can't be protecting every piece of, of critical na- national infrastructure everywhere around the clock. Whereas you and I walk past sensitive sites on a, on a daily basis, maybe not you and I personally, but, but people who live close to such sites. And by the way, we all lived near, for example, a railway, uh, some sort of storage site, a supermarket. The point is just for us all to pay attention. We all live here in London near a tube station. We can all pay attention, see if anything looks, looks unusual. And it's really sort of the national security equivalent of, of see it, say it sorted, right? That was, was thought up for terrorism, but it works for national security as well. Mark, you you conclude your piece by saying that it may well be the case that the time has come for the West to abandon its traditional policy of strategic ambiguity. What do you think Western governments should be saying right now to Putin and and his allies? Well, I think, first of all, it should not be public. I mean, I think that's a, a key point, is that sometimes the diplomacy needs to be carried out in public and that therefore it becomes an open challenge. But at other times, it can be done through back channels or just through quiet negotiations. I mean, that's why we still have, after all, embassies in in Moscow, however attenuated they may be. But I think the main thing is we found in the past that we have tried signalling in the sense of just simply saying, we know what you're doing and if you do it, bad things will happen to you. And it's clear that that hasn't worked. That certainly did not stop Putin from invading Ukraine in February. 
because he ultimately didn't think that we really meant it. He didn't think that we had the strength of convictions. He didn't think, to be blunt, that we were willing to take the costs involved. So I think this time, what we actually need to be saying is that we think you're going to be doing planning X or Y. And if you do that, this is a list of the measures that we plan to adopt. Now, that doesn't stop us from adding in more later on. It doesn't really force us to apply them. But the point is, it gives him a specific kind of menu of the kind of responses we've had. Now, some people worry that that actually limits our room for manoeuvre. Well, as I said, I think we, we can always, as I say, chop and change. Others say that it allows the Russians, in this case, to prepare and to therefore think, well, you know, if they're going to hit us with, with this or that, then what can we do? And that's, that, that's perfectly true. But I just think we need to appreciate the degree to which our past instruments have not worked and try something different. And I think that is the key thing. Putin does not really believe that we are serious. Still, even today, he still thinks that ultimately his secret weapon is will, that he ultimately can outlast and be more determined than us. Well, we need to actually demonstrate precisely what our will is, what our capacities are and what we're actually willing to do. Thank you, Mark and Elizabeth. Finally, in his article for The Spectator this week, Anthony Whitehead looks at a climate activist movement called the Tire Extinguishers, who are targeting SUVs in cities all around the world. He joins us now alongside a spokesperson from the movement who, to protect his anonymity, has been given the false name of Tusk. Anthony, could you start by telling us a little bit about the movement as you understand it and what they've been doing in your hometown of Bristol? Well, the tyre extinguishers go out at night and let down the tyres of large SUV-type vehicles. And a few hundred have been done in Bristol. And in fact, if you look at the papers this morning, there's recently been a hit in Edinburgh. So I think 60-odd cars have had their tyres flattened in Edinburgh last night. And the idea, as I understand it, is to dissuade people from buying large cars because large cars are wasteful and use more fuel and are therefore contributing to global warming. And the tyre extinguishers leave a a note on the windscreen of of the the car that they've hit saying, your gas guzzler is killing millions worldwide through climate change. And I just thought this is completely out of all proportion to the harm that cars actually do. I think for a long time we've been told that cars are the the devil and if we could only use buses more then that would make a huge difference to global warming. But as I say in my piece, cars actually only represent about 8% of emissions from burning fossil fuels. And that's not really very much. And SUVs are less than half the number of cars. And if you swap all the SUVs for Ford Fiestas, you decrease that by 20% and you you end up Even if every SUV on the planet was replaced by a Ford Fiesta tomorrow, you decrease carbon emissions by about half a percent. You're just not making very much difference, and it's a distraction from much more serious issues, which is mainly burning coal for power in countries like the US and Asia. Do you think, Anthony, there's the argument to sort of misuse the Tesco slogan of every little helps? Yes, I, I, I think they, they do think that every little helps. But I think there has to be some sort of cost-benefit analysis as to what you're doing, the harm you're doing, the inconvenience you're causing, and the good that you can potentially do. I mean, you, you could go out and kill cats. You know, <laughs> uh, cat, cats produce half a tonne of carbon dioxide a year. I think dogs are about a tonne. 
So, you know, it would probably help to go out and kill cats. But uh, you have to, you know, do an equation. Is it is it reasonable? And uh, would you actually upset the lives of people to an extent that's not acceptable, given that you're actually only achieving a tiny, tiny amount? And I say again, when there are much, much bigger fish to fry, it's a distraction from the real issues. Sorry, Anthony, are you advocating killing cats? No, I'm not advocating killing cats. I'm I'm just com- <laughs> using this as an example for if you say, well, we must do everything we can all the time, even if it's only going to help a little bit, then, you know, m- maybe you should kill cats. Or, uh, you know, just... It, you just said it, 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 these are tiny, tiny differences. Tusk, you're involved in the tar extinguisher movement. Can you take us through why you're involved in it? And also how you feel about some of the dangers of this sort of activity of, of letting people's tyres down and them not them being able to drive to a certain place or use their car in a, an emergency? Uh, sure. Yeah, so I got involved in tyre extinguishers a little while ago. I do it because it has tangible effects the very next day. There's less pollution, there's less death machines on the road. And to your second point about worrying about people not being able to make appointments. I feel like if you can avoid an SUV, you can avoid a taxi in an emergency. Well, so, 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 so Tusk, your, your goal is, is it to, you want just uh, people to stop driving SUVs entirely or use them in a more limited fashion? And why SUVs specifically as opposed to other types of car? So, you know, I, I think it would be naive to imagine that we will get to a car-free utopia anytime soon, let alone within the next 10 years. And SUVs do certainly have a role to play in transporting people around and doing farm work and stuff like that. But you know, the the idea of like a luxury SUV, a luxury utility vehicle, doesn't really make any sense to me at all. And if anything, I would like it to become like a social black ball for somebody to own an SUV. I, I can actually relate to that. I, I'm not saying that SUVs are a good idea for most people. They are wasteful. They they use more material than an ordinary car. They, therefore, they've got more embodied carbon. They're less efficient and and so on. And uh, if you park next to one in a supermarket car park, you can barely open the door because they're so, they're so big. So they quite irritate me as well. And if you were saying, I'm irritated by SUVs, so I'm going around deflating their tyres, then I would have slightly more sympathy. But if you say I'm deflating the tyres of SUVs because it's going to make a difference to global warming, then I think you've really got to look at the maths. I think all the cars in Britain, the UK government figure, annually emit 68 million tonnes of carbon dioxide. There's a power plant in Poland which by itself emits 38 million tonnes. So more than half the entire British fleet of cars accounted for by just one power plant burning coal. Do you not think that you're going out at night, getting a little frisson of excitement by attacking cars in the dark, when you really could be putting your time to better use, campaigning in a more positive way? At the, you know, we need the big wins. We need to do something about the things which really matter, not just whether an SUV uses a little bit more petrol or not. Well, I think we can do two things at the same time. The nice thing about the tire extinguishers actions is that they are very easily achievable. And they're so easily achievable that even the spectator has reprinted instructions on how to do it in your article. Uh, 
people can also go to our website to download the leaflets and do it themselves. I'm not sure how many spectator readers will actually take action, but you know, maybe there'll be one or two. I wonder. I wonder, Tusk. Um, do Do you worry ever that by taking action against people's cars and deflating their tyres, it might have the effect of irritating them to a point where they turn against your broader message about global warming rather than taking it too hard? No, I'm not at all worried about that. I think it's very unlikely that someone is ever going to buy an SUV out of spite to get back at the tyre extinguishers. We don't necessarily have to convince people. We just need to convince them that if they own an SUV, their tyres will be deflated. And Tusk, can I ask, if you're so sure of your position on this, you know, why is it that it is all done under kind of cover of darkness and everything's so covert? I mean, if you think that extinguishing tyres is the right thing to do, could you not do it during daylight? I would like to continue doing it. We sort of differ from other groups like Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil in that we think the most effective action is one that you can keep doing, not just going and spending a lot of time in jail. I take issue with the idea that you can do two things at once. I mean, of course, technically you can, but I think you you need a focus. And if you are deflating tyres of SUVs, then you're probably not doing other things. And also you're attracting people's attention to the wrong things. You're continuing the idea that cars are, you know, a massive part of the global warming problem, when in fact they're a relatively small part. And they've been demonised all my life. And in fact, the more I look at the figures, the less they seem to matter. I'm not saying they don't matter, but even, you know, if all the cars on the planet disappeared tomorrow, the carbon emissions of, of the world would only be taken back to around the situation of 10 years ago, when it was already one minute to midnight. So, you know, you're, you, you think you're at the front line in the, the battle against global warming, but in fact, you're, you're in an irrelevant skirmish, you know, on the outskirts. And I don't think you're achieving anything. What do you make of that, Tusk, the, the sort of argument that this is perhaps a misdirected use of time and energy, relatively speaking? Well, Anthony, I would just refer to your own article where you say that all of the SUV emissions globally are comparable to Indonesia. Indonesia is a country of 280 million people. That's a lot of emissions just for getting about in a slightly bigger car. I think that there's so much that we can do and cars are definitely a big part of the problem. And it's not just cars, but it's also the sort of mindset that SUVs envelop. 10%, the richest 10% globally are responsible for 50% of emissions. Those people who own SUVs are likely jetting off to meetings, business meetings in different places, buying lots of imported goods with huge amounts of embodied carbon. These are the people that we need to sit up and take notice of their own actions. Well, you've got to be careful of, of the maths there because, yes, the total emissions from SUVs might be the same as Indonesia. But if they drove smaller cars instead, that's only a fraction of that percentage. It's not that if because they're driving SUVs, it's the same as Indonesia. It's just a little bit higher than it would have been if they were driving ordinary cars. 20% of Indonesia, or very roughly something like that. Tusk, may I, may I just ask, when, it, when you think about the, 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 the people who own these SUVs whose tars you extinguish, and the potential inconvenience they might have, I mean, there's an there's example that, that Anthony used in his piece about someone who cannot get to a hospital. I mean, does, does that ever worry you from a sort of moral perspective? That does worry me, yeah. But you have to be pragmatic, somewhat maybe utilitarian. 
a doctor who is on their way to their shift at the hospital, they can definitely afford another way of getting in for that one day. Well, they might be able to afford it, but whether they'll actually be able to do it quite as reliably and quickly is another matter. And also, why, why SUVs particularly? The information is available on what cars emit the most or are the most inefficient. I mean, some SUVs are aimed at families, they're quite budget orientated and they're quite fuel efficient. Some small cars can be, sporty small cars can be uh, quite inefficient. One of the doctors who was interviewed on television, who'd had her tyres extinguished, said it's a bit rough because I've got a family SUV and my tyres were flattened. There's an Aston Martin behind me that was left alone, which has a much, much worse fuel economy, obviously. And so it's just a bit crude, isn't it? Unfortunately, yes. Um, It's not a perfect movement, but I do believe it's better than the alternative, which is doing nothing. And Tass, just to finish, can can I ask what your preferred mode of transport is? How how do you get around Bristol or wherever it is you're based? Teleportation. That's a very low carbon footprint. Thank you, Anthony and Tusk. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please pick up a copy of the magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast, and we do hope you'll join us again next week. <laughs>